You are the sport for you. I'm Colby. Colby? That's very familiar. It's a common name. You're very enthusiastic. No bloody good, but very enthusiastic, yeah. You play matches? Oh, yeah, we have a league, four divisions. We even play internationals. Internationals? Yeah. England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales. Oh, you call that international? Would be international if you played against Germany. <laughs> We'd murder you. Oh, Colby, John Colby. Yes, West Ham United and England. That's right. It's a shame the war has ended your career. Interrupted. Let's hope so. My name's Tom Jennings, and this is the 24th Frames cast. And my apologies for the amount of time it's been between episodes. It certainly wasn't my intention um, to give a kind of a brief overview of everything I've been up to. My work was uh, fairly ridiculous from kind of September onwards in terms of the amount of projects I was working on. And it's all been very um, interesting uh, films and documentaries and kind of advertising campaigns that I've been I've been working on. However, they have kind of cut into my time and it just got to the point really where I was kind of working most of the day coming back home and you know watching films I just didn't feel like the kind of had the urge really to kind of uh, do anything other than kind of relax when I had the opportunity and luckily the kind of things have uh, cleared up on that department and then uh, unfortunately in November I became quite ill um, as a result of being out filming out in the wild and I ended up with a quite horrendous uh, infection in my teeth, which um, still, unfortunately, isn't hasn't been fully resolved. Uh, haven't been to the dentist in years, and I've paid the ultimate price, really, and literally paid the ultimate price in terms of the kind of the amount of money I've had to stump up for God knows various what. So, I wasn't really in the mood over Christmas to kind of sit down and kind of bore you all to death with it. And luckily, things are on the up now, and I. Uh, I've watched quite a lot of films and television recently and I, I've kind of got like a backlog of things I wanted to talk about and today I didn't really want to, um, I haven't really been to the cinema all that much recently and today I'm going to be talking about um, the Amazon original series The Man in the High Castle and I've, I've never done it, I, 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 I don't recall, where I've talked about a guilty pleasure of mine and one of my favourite all-time guilty pleasures was on Over Christmas and that was John Huston's Escape to Victory so I'm going to be doing a little bit about that but I want to kind of begin really with something of an observation and it kind of all stemmed really from I was watching a film called Girlhood which was part of my kind of catching up on 2015 releases and um, it's a French film directed by Celine um, I think you pronounce her name uh, Shmama or something like that I'm not entirely sure everyone who listens to this podcast will know how terrible I am about foreign pronunciations but Girlhood unfortunately uh, came out in Manchester I think it played for about a week and the timings were just really not conducive for me at all I, I, it seemed to be I could either watch it at half past two in the afternoon or half past nine at night for, for me to go to one of those screenings it would be going home coming back into town and it just seemed a bit of a ball ache really and it only played for a week before kind of disappearing and I it, there was a lot of hype around girlhood um, I remember reading some very positive reviews in sight and sound about it and there seemed to be this kind of really high, highly prestigious films that a lot of critics were kind of falling over themselves for us to go and see and I, I just didn't get around to it and I rented the the Blu-ray from uh, Love Film, and I was kind of like a little bit surprised, really, that Girlhood had received such acclaim. Um, I didn't think it was a particularly great film at all, and 
it took me a while really to kind of work out where I kind of objected to this film. And it seemed to me that I kept coming back to the fact that there was this perception by critics and the, the filmmaker herself that this was some sort of important statement that needed to be seen. And I need to kind of preface this really because I don't think you have to experience something necessarily to write about it. And it, it's a fairly obvious statement to make. And I mean, a, a good writer needs skills like empathy and a, an ability to tell a good tale. And you know, of course, there's many things in life that are fairly um, universal. Um, I, for example, last night I watched Alien again for the first time in a couple of years, and I don't need to have experienced what it must be like to be trapped on a spaceship with an alien to find that it's absolutely, obviously, incredibly terrifying. Um, I've been chased by a dog before, and I, I don't say that flippantly. I was actually genuinely chased by an extremely large animal that wanted to bite me and hurt me, um, and it was absolutely terrifying. You don't have to be stranded alone on Mars to know, you know, to understand that Mark Watney in the in the Martian is incredibly lonely and and, and scared. You know, these are all things which we've experienced. So I think, you know, obviously, good screenwriting can therefore take us anywhere, really. And there seems to be this one place where girlhood included, where in recent years, where, where films have taken me to this place and left me feeling kind of just slightly conflicted and ultimately slightly annoyed. And that kind of place in cinema is modern inner cities and these films are commonly referred to as social realism now now i was raised very very middle class um and by middle class i don't know if that's kind of a set of ideals um i i certainly don't i don't believe it is really i, I think it was just my kind of existence we my father had a good job we had a nice house um, my mum didn't work and you know we lived in a small village in kent and i'm i was there um until I went to university in Sheffield and it was a bit of a culture shock, it has to be said, to suddenly go from a place where it's, I suppose, slightly affluent to somewhere where you can obviously tell people simply had extremely hard lives. And I, 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 you know, there's no way of kind of glossing that up or kind of looking. I, I hope I don't sound like I'm, I'm snobbish. It's just a statement of fact that when, when you go to cities, you will see people who are on low incomes and... I wouldn't say, I suppose shocking would be the wrong word, but I had never really seen that side of life before, and it, I suppose it was eye-opening would be. And I kind of came home after university for about a year and a half, and then I ended up moving to Manchester. And I began working um, with Manchester City Council, working with uh, young people. And not only was it a thoroughly good time, I, it was you know, an amazing experience, but I think it also kind of changed the way I perceived what inner city life was like and it seemed to me that it was completely opposed to the common perception that was being portrayed at the time um i remember one distinctly one time a researcher for a tv program called young dumb and living off mum uh, called and asked us if we had a system in selecting possible candidates to appear on the show and i asked him why he thought this would be something we would even want to help with let alone you know actually partake in and he, he kind of said to me well you know obviously it'd be a, you, you guys have contact with with young people and you'd be a good you know idea at picking of candidates and I asked him directly you know did you honestly think that we're going to help you in this and his answer I suppose wasn't entirely unsurprising because surely he reasoned that there were loads of teenagers in Manchester who were simply sat around missing school and generally failing at life. And 
he kind of perceived Manchester to be this almost third world country. I think it's important to also preface that he was based in London. And that obviously, you know, they, northern kids didn't do anything other than kind of get up to all manner of crime. And when I corrected him and told him in no uncertain terms that he could fuck off, he seemed genuinely amazed that the reality that he had in his mind was far from what we were actually experiencing on the ground of it well of course and yeah obviously i've kind of said that i was slightly guilty of that when i moved to sheffield and manchester but the fact that he he you know school attendance in manchester was actually really good and he it just seemed to kind of completely bamboozle him now of course there are exceptions there are young people who do get up to a lot of no good yet these percentage is actually minuscule to the amount of positive outcomes that young people achieve and kind of what, what kind of point am I making in how does this kind of relate to film well the kind of rot for me started last year when I saw a film called The Selfish Giant and it was a British film directed by Cleo Bernard and it was an unrelentingly depressing film set in northern England that about an hour and a half felt about three days and it was also terrible and when I say terrible, I mean in the literal sense. Um, it was just utterly hideous. You, you know, young people being exploited and beaten, terrible families, you know, animal abuse, and it looked okay. There's no, there's no denying that. And um, it was very well directed. It was very well acted. Um, but it was what I have coined uh, a classic example of misery porn, and and it's a form of cinema that wants to show you a world that you don't want to face or what people perceive the one that you don't want to face. And it, it, it's a kind of existence that it goes on. You have your nice kind of warm house, and just a few miles away, there is this grim, unrelenting misery of modern life that is going on. What these films tend to do is they don't offer you a, a nice, easy solution to all this misery. And typically, you are supposed to blame yourself for not caring enough. And though... And although kind of what you exactly you're, what you can do about it is a total mystery to me, unless you kind of voted for the Conservatives, then this is kind of what you wanted in the first place. But I, I rather get the impression that the people who are making these films are mistaking fiction for reality and deluding themselves that the fiction they are offering you is in some way the reality of the world around you. Now, simply viewing the biographies of these directors, and I don't mean to sound as dismissive as I am, but... These are clearly decidedly very middle class people. And again, I'm not saying they've had to have lived through this life, but I rather suspect that the appeal to making these stories is since they are looking for serious material and somehow feel that there is a greater importance to the work they're actually doing. And I kind of did a little bit of digging after this and I came across uh, what the British Film Institute has to say about social realism. And this is, this is, I, I quote, social realism has shown us to ourselves, pushing the boundaries in the effort to put experience of real Britons on the screen. Now, now the term real Britain means only one thing, and that's working class. And it is in itself laden with meanings, and I'll, I'll expand on that in due course. But make no mistake, this also you can you can take the term real Britain, you can take real German, real f French, whatever. You know, it's it's completely transferable to any national cinema, but. It's interesting to me because I think class is only relevant to films that take place in a working class environment and with them come a very predictable set of generic characteristics and typically what you have in these kind of social realist films is that you have you, you often have these characters who are kind of teetering on two outcomes one of which is tragedy and 
the other one being that they will kind of get this this chance to escape this hideous world and you can pretty much guarantee that the family life will be completely awful um, you'll have abusive siblings or parents and you name the combination of defunction it will be there um, abject poverty in the home and the surrounding area random acts of brutal violence aversion to any form of academic study exploitation easily coerced into illegality drug addicts and in some form the above will be in there and i kind of ask myself you know how how real is this really and i really kind of challenge this view that's being shown on screen i i I find the intention of the filmmakers in this kind of effort to educate me in some way to be kind of quite patronising in the extreme. Now, recently, obviously, I watched Girlhood, and it was, of course, a social realist film. It was set in the housing tenements of Paris, and it wasn't a bad film by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, it had kind of like, I suppose, kind of post Lahaine, it, it it lacked a kind of the vibrancy and energy of that. But as I was watching it, my kind of my eyes began to kind of roll because. You know, what had I seen throughout it? Well, abusive relationships, the complete lack of academic attainment, and the, somehow the fact that instantly, if you're not very good in school, that's just a one-way ticket to drug dealing. And you know, these young people, all they seemed to be interested in was fornication and violence. And obviously you had kind of like the brother in this case who was incredibly violent. And it was all, yeah, yeah the critics loved this film. And she was praised for her bravery in showing it to us. And... Of course, the film lacks, I suppose, the kind of commercial appeal. And in this kind of like aversion that this kind of director wasn't trying to make something that was easygoing and you know, could could play to the masses, this was somehow kind of part of her bravery in bringing it to us in the first place. And it was this kind of commitment that she had to giving us this social realism. I kind of, it, not so much in relation to Girlhood, but this is what Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian had to say about the, self, the selfish giant. And he said it was crusading social realism may have long since ceased to be fashionable in Britain's theatre and television drama. But in the cinema, the flame stubbornly continues to burn. Now, again, think about that term social realism. I mean, just to kind of give a, a spoiler away in, in the selfish genre, a child ends up getting burnt to death by an electricity cable. Um, and we kind of have this kind of, you know, modern day Fagan who just bullies and beats children into doing these things for him. And I'm sat there thinking, you know, do we really need to see more of this? Because I don't even believe that what we're being shown actually exists anyway. And, you know, in girlhood, you have kind of girls fighting each other in the street and symbolically, forcibly ripping their clothing from their victims and then posting their achievements on YouTube. And it just seemed to me, really, that social realism in this film was kind of a micro, you know, taking a kind of a microscopic look into obviously very, you know, despicable behaviour, but of a tiny minority and, and have we kind of mistaken this for being mass teen delinquency and girlhood just fell into all these traps it's assumptions that inner city girls you know in, in achieve to in order to achieve respect and acceptance they have to use violence and crime and the establishment in this film is is also really part of the problem or apparently part of the problem because the lead character she's told that she's going to have to leave school and because we obviously put so much pressure on these children to, to, you know, to go through school, college or whatever, that's instantly then basically throwing her out onto the streets and then where, where she's going to kind of fall into this kind of trap. 
I find society in these films is virtually non-existent. There's just these people seem to be the characters that were shown are these kind of Frankenstein's that we've created with our kind of complete disregard for the for the generation coming through. And I, I think it's complete bullshit. Um, liberal masochism is it's a real phenomenon at the moment. I mean, all you need to do is look at something like ISIS. You know, ISIS are all our fault. We we make these poor people, these these poor young men, go and join them, and then slaughter people by the hundreds, and throw homosexual men off tall buildings, and behead people in you know, brutal acts. We, we're the ones who have made this, and it really is quite strange to me. I mean, we had riots here in Manchester a few years ago after the um, the police shooting of Mark Duggan, and I remember I was working in in children at the time, and the the reaction to this was well, you know we've we've created this situation you know all those kids out who are out there rioting it's because we failed them and it, it was incredible to me because I, I you know the people that rioted they were they represented a tiny tiny fraction of the population it was it was minuscule really and why we couldn't just say they were just a load of opportunistic shitbags that you wanted to go on a rob and cause some damage but you know it, it was this kind of it suddenly became this mass problem that we had all caused and we it just kind of fueled i think this view that it's our problem and yet we can we, we can find the cure and there's there's very you know there's various ways we can find the cure and understanding and all this kind of crap and people just seem to get completely sidetracked by the fact that in in terms of numbers we're not talking about a majority we're talking about a tiny tiny minority and Let's, let's look at the majority more and, and, and celebrate that. Now, a classic point for me is a film like The Full Monty. Now, Sheffield was decimated um, in the 80s, you know, the, the, the closure of all the steel factories and whatnot. And along comes a film that deals with the aftermath of this. And what you get is a film that doesn't condemn people in economic depravity to misery and hardship. Instead, what you get is a feel-good film where these circumstances, they don't define these people uh, all their lives. They seem to just want to kind of make the best of a, a not-so-great situation. And now, just for the record, I haven't seen The Full Monty in a, in a long time. I'm, I remember thinking it was okay when it came out. I don't really have much desire to go and see it, but it was one that instantly kind of sprang to mind because, you know, it, 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 I, I think it takes a slightly more humanitarian approach to looking at the issue of social realism and again I, I don't even like the term I don't even like saying it to be honest with you but you know girlhood seems to think it's performing some kind of social public service for us and, and the critics you know responses also came with warnings like you know it wasn't a pleasant experience it is essential that you should go and watch it I mean the word essential I mean, girlhood is not an essential film by any stretch of the imagination the selfish giant is an essential film you don't have to watch them to somehow enrich your life it's, it's absolute load of bull and I, I go back again to the people who are making these films and you know for the most part they're kind of highly educated upper to middle class individuals and they're writing about a world that they think they know and that's through a filter of basically very very preconceived notions of what the current state of working urban class life is like and as I said you know my my own experience differed massively from this I saw really close-knit friendship groups and really close families and of course there are exceptions there always will be but and I, I can't say that my experience obviously applies to the whole world and, and there is a need I think for films which you know do show us the uglier side of life but 
now I can think of an immediate um, example being the Dardanelle brothers. I think they make you know, they make films which loosely would come under this category of being kind of social realism films. But w- one thing I always find about those um, Dardanelle films is that they show people trying to trying to improve their lives at the time. And yeah, you know, for example, Rosetta, um, you know, that actually brought a change in Belgium employment laws. You know, there was a real issue there, and that film showed that highlighted that. And it, eventually, some you know some good came from it. But it, it, they don't tend to condemn their characters in the same way a lot of other people do. And yeah, some of my favourite films will come under this banner. You know, The Four Hundred Blows, for example, is a perfect example. The reason why films, I think, like Girlhood won't stand up the test of time alongside the likes of something like Saturday Night and Sunday Morning is the fact that if you look at Arthur in Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, I mean, who hasn't toiled with the ideas of monogamy and the appeal of, you know, a carefree life juxtaposed with that kind of crushing sense that life might just be merely a loop playing out over and over. And it it speaks to us because it's real. We can, yes, it kind of comes under the category of being social realism, but these are characters who we we can recognize the kind of the way that they're thinking and how they're reacting in those situations and i'm not moved by the likes of girlhood and the self-assurance because however well-intentioned these films are they're not teaching us anything moreover they just kind of belie the fact that those who are making them and a great deal of critics who fawn over them have kind of through the repetition and regurgitation of these rather cliched generic misrepresentations have kind of created this fallacy that what they're doing is more important than just making a normal film. And it kind of goes back to what I'm saying, really, about the fact that we have to look at these films as what they are, which is fiction. And there might be echoes of the truth in there somewhere, but if you watch Girlhood and think that what you have just seen is a real nailed-on depiction of inner city life in Paris I might be completely wrong it might be it might be like for some people watching a documentary that but I honestly don't think it is I I think it's again it comes back to this idea of this social masochism that we have that we have somehow through our not caring created this awful world for these people to live in and I I, I wish that, you know, we can kind of redefine and relook at this term social realism and try and kind of work towards making films that are definitely you know, have a social conscience, but also let's look at this term realism and try and move away from all these horrendously awful stereotypes. Because like a lot of stereotypes, you know, you go to those vaguely harmless stereotypes, you know, people from Yorkshire are tight fisted or something like that. But portraying you know, young people time and time again as just being interested in violence and just bad recreational habits. I don't think it's doing anyone any favours, least of all people in the real world. What is this? Newsreel film. It shows us winning the war. We didn't win the war. Now we have a better world. 
those who seek to drag us all backward. We have arrested suspects smuggling subversive films. That film shows the world not as it could be, but as it is. It has to be about something more. I need answers. This film could bring this whole thing tumbling down. A film that shows another world, so what? So it means that maybe the world could change. Take this. What is this? It's a new film. There's something different about this one. Different how? So I think it's fairly safe to say that I like Philip K. Dick films much more than his books. And I guess that's kind of a slightly sacrilegious point of view to take. And I, I, obviously Philip K. Dick didn't actually make films. I suppose it's the adaptions of his books that I enjoy more than the books themselves. And there have been quite a few times where I've attempted to read something that he's done. And I get about a third of the way in and... I decided that I'm, I'm fooling no one. I have absolutely no idea what is going on. And quite frankly, I'm too kind of baffled to start again. So, yeah, I'm going to stick with the film adaptions of his works. And from Blade Runner to Total Recall, he is a writer whose work often seems to inspire others to make such interesting and engaging films. And yes, uh, I do include The Adjustment Bureau in that, which I think is a tremendously underrated film. But... The Man in the High Castle was one Philip K. Dick book that I did manage to get all the way through. And if I'm being honest, I was a little, not so much perplexed by it, but slightly kind of more underwhelmed as I was completely engaged by it. Its central premise to me was so interesting. What what would happen if the Allies had lost the war? You know, What would happen if the one-time Allies, Germany and Japan, suddenly began to have a thawing of relations and... Luckily, we never got to find out, but this doesn't stop us from asking ourselves the question. And to me, it seems like a very pertinent one. And I think you have to look at kind of fascism as being the worst form of society there is in any form, you know, political, religious. The, the unimaginable horror and misery vested on other humans being, as well as the kind of the repression by the state and the erosion of human rights, it really would seem to me to be the worst thing, the worst scenario we could ever wish upon ourselves. And it's one that, in kind of from a humanitarian point of view, we seem to be repulsed by it, and rightly so. But it never fails to amaze me how we like to tiptoe into the dark side, and given certain situations, we will quite easily, I think, begin to show and behave in ways which could be considered part of totalitarian fascist regimes i mean to a lighter example take something like in america you have to you have the patriot act and, and the, the term alone um i, I think it's an almost kind of orwellian piece of workplace because you know, criticize or express some kind of discontent at the government and hey presto suddenly you are unpatriotic it's a kind of a form of thought crime in a way that's being done in the name of patriotism and and you can kind of see the residual effects of this on in, in the media as well. I mean, I remember an interview with um, Bill O'Reilly and the, 
a man who's I think his father had been killed in September 11th and this guy is, is basically saying that he doesn't think it's such a great idea to start bombing Afghanistan I, I, I don't know if he mentions Iraq but just see Bill O'Reilly erupt at him and I know that's hardly anything new but you can see how this kind of thinking warps how people conceive the way in which they, they think they're serving the country they live in and you have it now i mean the, the whole kind of this the, the drone killing now i don't agree with this idea and, and people like noam chomsky yeah, i i find yeah, they make these outrageous statements they kind of they, you know like america is the biggest exporter of evil on the planet it's, it's a ridiculous position to take but and, and I, I think it should speak for itself the ludicrousness of a statement like that but it doesn't he, you know, he obviously finds an audience and just for the record I, I do agree with a lot of Noam Chomsky says I also think he talks a lot of absolute garbage on a lot of issues that being one of them but you know, th th there's no getting around the fact that people around the world are killed having not actually done anything apparently to protect us and it's a it's a it's a very alarming state of affairs and you know love him or hate him you know, Ed, edward snowden has blown it in on quite some quite hideous practices that are going on and the answer kind of tends to be the fact you know, if, if you're not doing anything wrong you've got nothing to fear but there's still i think issues in there i mean what what you know for example if the government found out teachers were planning on going on a strike for better pay you know are, are we that far away from this being seen as some kind of insurrection you, you just simply don't know and i and it seems to be a debate that I don't hear enough of it. And the debates that I do hear seem to kind of the spectrum of which people are debating is so extreme that the, the, the kind of more moderate voices, the more reasoned voices tend to kind of get swept aside. So I thought it was quite interesting when Amazon announced that they were going to put the man into the high castle into production. Now, they had this brilliant thing a few months ago where they kind of put a load of pilot episodes for programs that they might make and i i, I love this and I, i'm really enjoying um the what amazon are doing in terms of the television they're making um it, it seems like a fantastic idea for me um last year i i, I really really enjoyed it. netflix as well i think they're really kind of they're competing for mainstream television and i, th I think it's a good thing i think everyone's being encouraged to up their game and Amazon and, and Netflix in particular seem to kind of know a, a great deal about this, the box set binge culture that we're living in. And, um, you know, they're giving us you know all the episodes there so you can just tuck in at your own time. And, and we're loving it. And, and, I, and you know, it's, it's great. It's a great time to be a fan of um, television serials because there's so much, there's so much variety out there and there's so much good stuff being made. And from what I understand, The Man in the High Castle received... Um, we certainly received a lot of excellent reviews and it was going to be put into production you know, pretty much it was pretty nailed on and there was a kind of an agonizing wait really for it to come out and then those rather brilliant kind of teaser trailers began hey presto i think it was november it finally arrived or it might have been december i'm not sure i went back i watched the first episode i watched the second episode and i have to confess there was something about the man in the high castle that didn't really make me want to kind of binge watch it, binge watch it, sorry, in the way that a lot of other TV series do. And after the first five episodes, I was 
a little bit cold really as to how I felt about it and of course you can you, you know having all the episodes there you know the temptation would have been just to plow through them and try and get to the end but this wasn't the case with the man in the high cast so I didn't really have the urgency and I, I, I wasn't crucially I wasn't really that I don't suppose interested but I wasn't intrigued enough to kind of think right you know as soon as an episode ended think right I slap the next one on and I wasn't quite sure if this was a bad thing or not and it, it does sound like that I'm, I'm perhaps being slightly negative towards the series but I think we kind of have to have just a little look at those first episodes because from the outset this is a very grim series um we have women and children being gassed people hung from lamp posts and there is absolutely zero humor to be found in this in this series rightly so perhaps we're talking you know a, a pretty awful thing that's happened in it and it kind of made me think about you know, the term entertainment and, and what this really means i mean you can find entertainment in the most obscure places when it comes to art form you know for example, from like Irreversible, it, it captivated me. Um, was I entertained by it? Well, no, not in the fun sense of things, but as a kind of a cinematic exercise, then yes. And what I found about The Man in the High Castle, that it seemed almost too melancholic for its own good, or so I thought. Because I can do misery, but what I can't really handle is boredom. I actually wasn't sure at some stages what I was if I was just bored or miserable. Now, when a series' most compelling character is its most despicable, this isn't hardly something that's new. And in the kind of the Game of Thrones era, it, you know, we shouldn't be surprised at all. But the issue that I I found with the Man in the High Castle really was that the characters that we identify as being good protagonists were really dull. Now. Now, the lead character um, is a lady called Juliana Crane, played by Alexa Davalos. And she does a very good job uh, at looking very unhappy and slightly perplexed. But for the most part, her and her partner Frank, played by Rupert Evans, seem to kind of lack any kind of pop and fizz necessary to make the story really that interesting. It's, oh, this is already helped by the fact that they don't seem to really be affecting the story. Moreover... It just sort of kind of lands on their laps and they seem privy to the narrative as opposed to actually moving it forward. And now there are richer pickings to be found in terms of character wise in people like Rufus Sewell, who plays SS commander John Smith. And there's fun in his kind of scheming. He's a quite despicable person. And the, the kind of key to his character is as well, they bring back, they kind of serve all his kind of beliefs and this kind of political ideology back in his face and i won't um spoil as to what happens but you suddenly find yourself almost kind of sympathizing with a bit even to a degree you actually kind of admire the, the, the direction that he tries to go in and it's kind of quite strange when such a horrible person kind of starts behaving exactly how you would behave in in, in the same situation and it kind of highlights the fact that his kind of dedication is nothing really more kind of like sadism opportunism um he, he kind of becomes a cause without a kind of a true belief and even more slightly more pathetic as a human being yet as a kind of strangely in a kind of humanitarian basis he kind of grows in your estimation and even kind of talking about him in those kind of contexts at least shows that he has some sort of debt 
Now, there is also one of the Japanese characters, um, the trade minister, uh, trade minister called um, Nobosuke Tomogoi, played by, and I think it's placed, pronounced Kari Togana. Um, he was another character who lives by a very strict code of chi and meditation, and his life is rooted in the tradition, yet the world around him is kind of moving really toward what looks to be a kind of technological destruction and this kind of cold war that has developed between Japan and Germany is clearly dangerous and he's one of the few people that can kind of see the fact that the ideology that both sides are clinging to might be the very kind of ideological political movement that will potentially almost end the world as it were there seems to be a real kind of I suppose weight to the issues that he's dealing with now the central kind of premise of the man in the high castle is really a kind of a what if within a what if and the, the characters are asking themselves what would the world be like had the allies won or at least they seem to be asking themselves that question and no one actually says it out loud I guess they just seem to look at these videos that they're that they're seeing all these, these films sorry that that they're seeing and be a little bit kind of confused by them in, in fact the expressions on their faces um yeah it's, it's a mixture of kind of horror almost sometimes it's, it's, it's strange and this is again it's, it's not really knowing what what's motivating these characters and not really kind of i don't think they know what's going on and i i, I neither do we really and but what, what's interesting is really is that they're watching this what if reality of the allies of one and i'm watching this film thinking watching the man in the high castle sorry thinking well I, i'm mildly concerned by the similarities which i'm seeing in the man in the high castle in relation to things like the kind of the patriot acts and you know, state surveillance it's it's all in the man in the high castle and in within in the show itself you see this is kind of a physical process you know, people listening to phones they note conversation now it's all kind of done digitally yeah a few <laughs> a few words spoken and that's it you, you, your voice is recorded and that's infinitely more kind of terrifying than this uh, notepad and paper approach we see in the series yet science fiction is a really perfect example um, Star Trek does it brilliantly I used to think I thought something like you know, Star Trek The Undiscovered Country well, of course that, that that's a parable of the end of the Cold War and, and I think science fiction is a perfect vehicle to that because it can smuggle in themes that perhaps we wouldn't be too comfortable with dealing too literally, I guess. And I'm, I mean, one of the things I did notice about The Man in the High Castle was the fact that if you're doing nothing wrong, you have no reason to worry if you are doing something wrong. Or you know, even if you, sorry, even if you are doing something wrong, even if you're thinking about doing something wrong, that's when the state will come and crush you. And again, we, are, we, we walk a tightrope with that at the moment. I mean, if... You know, I think good science fiction holds a mirror up sometimes to us and it kind of smuggles in themes which we're not perhaps comfortable dealing with literally. Um, I mean, something like Star Trek, The Undiscovered Country, clearly it's a parable about the end of the Cold War and it kind of gets into the kind of the paranoia and kind of getting over that and moving on. And I, I wanted The Man in the High Castle to really kind of hold a mirror up to us even more for us to have a look at. And I don't think it went far enough... Um, you know, I, I, one thing I've talked about a lot is they have something like Captain America the Winter Soldier which I think is, is, it's a post-Snowden era film and it's brilliant in that respect it really kind of 
makes us think about ideals and what those ideals are. And I, I feel like The Man in the High Castle should make us a little bit more uncomfortable than it does. And perhaps it's because, again, it, it's hard to have these debates without kind of losing the nuance and the subtleties of arguments by listening more to the kind of the the more controversial elements in debates. It's like, for example, kind of like, you cannot get away from the fact at the moment there is a massive problem with jihadism in the world. And you have the ridiculous, you know, Donald Trump's going to ban every Muslim from entering America. It's a ridiculous thing. And then you have kind of on the, the latter end of that, you have this kind of, especially kind of in, certainly kind of in the liberal camp, the fact that there is no problem with jihadism in within islam it's it, it's all the west's fault and it's something you know to even say that the two are related somehow makes you islamophobic and it's a, again it's as ridiculous as donald trump saying they should ban every muslim from entering america these are the issues at the moment that we that we, we seem to be unable to deal with in a rational fashion and getting aside from all that i mean there was a few things about this series that i i did enjoy for example it looks amazing and frank spotness i mean he's one of the show the show's producers i mean he comes from millennium which was a, a great series i really enjoyed that the x files and this guy knows i think how to build worlds for on the full screen format the man in high castle um yeah you can tell a lot of it's cgi and it, it might not be you know, some of the best CGI ever, but I, I was certainly the, the, the aesthetic nature of the show. I really did enjoy. Um, but overall, this wasn't the classic series that I think I was looking for at the moment. And I, I do think it's a brave show in many respects. It is brutal. It's shocking at times. And it, it, like I said, it's thoroughly depressing, but there needs to be more work on the characters and kind of fleshing them out a little bit more. And they need to, they need to, be the narrative i think rather than kind of being on the peripheral of it. and obviously there's this, this whole MacGuffin going on and and the, the show has deviated quite a lot from the novel which a lot of it was pretty plodding to be brutally honest with you and i am intrigued for the next series it has to be said but i think this is a case of kind of be careful what you wish for because i don't want to just like this on principle as opposed to really really enjoying it and, and we want challenging television there's definitely room for it yet I rather think at the moment the man in the high castle is more about premise than it really is a truly compelling entity and time will tell and I, I, this, going back to this kind of model of tv distributions you know shows live and die by their ratings and here i think time might be the greatest ally of this because this doesn't have to, this isn't selling product in every 15 minutes to us i'm sure they must have some kind of um viewing figures that obviously the amount of people who are streaming it and things like that that must that's obviously going to be their benchmark by what they do but you know if, if a show is available for three years and people can duck in if it's getting consistently high views then perhaps they might be a little bit more hesitant before pulling the trigger because you won't have that immediacy of needing to make money quite so quickly and it's interesting because you know, Amazon, obviously, it's a huge, huge organisation. It has you know, seemingly limitless amounts of money to chuck at these things. So hopefully the man in the high castle will continue. But I think it needs to I think it needs to do more to engage its audience. I think it needs to kind of 
perhaps take a little bit of a step back and kind of really focus and tighten up those storylines. And and then I don't necessarily think the show needs to lighten up. I just think it needs to kind of really lock down and get itself into a bit of a groove. And I want this to be a box set addiction. And at the moment, I just can't really say categorically that it is. And that's a little bit of a shame, but time will tell. What's the verdict on Williams? Regrettable mistake. The whole bloody war's a regrettable mistake. I agree. Do you? Well, you can believe me or not, it's nothing to me. If nations could settle their differences on the football pitch, wouldn't that be a challenge? How would you like to play a game against a team from the Wehrmacht? A team from the army base nearby? What for? Settle the war? Unfortunately, no. Let's say, for morale. Yours or ours? For both. Life in this place must be very boring. Okay, so I realise I've never really kind of done this before, which is talk about films which perhaps come under the umbrella term a guilty pleasure and as guilty pleasures go I don't think this one is that embarrassing I certainly have a few more I'm looking at one right now which I will probably never discuss in public but um perhaps if I um, get extremely drunk one night I might record an episode on it as to, as to why I love it but for the for the time being this film will remain a mystery but the one I'm going to talk about today um is a film by John Huston called Escape to Victory now for the sake of clarity as well, I will not be calling football soccer on this. I will be referring to it as football. And I mean football as in the European football and not the American football sense. So just to clarify that. But it's a strange one, Escape to Victory, because somehow John Houston, Michael Caine, Sylvester Stallone, Pele, um, Ipswich Football Clubs and Max von Sydow kind of combined to make what is, I think, one of the most enjoyable films that I've ever seen it was a stable of my childhood and I think it went on it kind of last up to the age of about 12 I seem to think where it went kind of disappeared from my film viewing rotation and I had my film snob stage where I would probably consider this to be highly uh, highly beneath me and then it kind of reappeared I think about 2008 where I picked it up on DVD in Tesco for about three quid and um, went back to it and absolutely loved it and it's been I've seen it many times since and I thoroughly enjoy it every time and Escape to Victory takes the tale of a group of POWs who are being held in a German prison camp and they're kind of held together by uh, Michael Caine playing a character called Major Colby and he organises a football tournament um, just kind of internally within the camp and Max von Sydow who plays a German prison officer um, who used to be himself like my major Colby, uh, international football players, suggests it might be a nice idea to have the POWs play the guards. But German propaganda gets hold of this and decides that this should be a game of the best team the POWs can muster and the German national team. And very quickly the game spirals from what's meant to be a bit of a fun kick around to a matter of national pride. However, these being POWs, this game does offer them a good chance to escape. And what we have is a, uh, an American captain called Robert Hatch, who's played by Sylvester Stallone, who knows nothing about football, yet he wants to escape and he manages to force his way onto the team and orchestrate their daring breakout. However, things don't quite go to plan because as the game goes on, the POWs are being beaten soundly. And of course, the Germans have bribed the referee to give them a few decisions. 
But something begins to happen during the game where it looks like the POWs might be able to snatch a result. So do they carry on with the game or do they make their bid for freedom? Well, I'll let you watch the film and make up your own minds what happens. So it's an interesting film because 90, uh, Escape to Victory was made in 1981 and the fact that that year in itself is, is worth discussion because this wasn't a World Cup year. In fact, it wasn't kind of any a year for any kind of international tournament. So I can't really see what it's kind of cashing in on. And America had flirted with a football revolution, um, which was headed by the New York Cosmos. And of course, Pelé used to play for them. But by 1981, the New York, the North American Soccer League was well on the descent. Um, and it was kind of like going towards oblivion. I think the issue was that they couldn't get really um, the coverage on, on television that they needed. And there's a brilliant film called uh, Once in a Lifetime, which is the story of the New York Cosmos, which I can heartily recommend. And I kind of always go back to the point, you know, what was John Huston doing anywhere near this film? There's no, no uh, mention of it made in his autobiography or anything, but it reminded me in some ways of a, an Ealing comedy, in fact, in, of an updated Ealing comedy in, in, in many regards. You have the kind of the plucky inmates who are always kind of thinking of ingenious ways of beating the system. And they live, they're a community that's living under a greater power, yet resolutely they will not be put down. And the, the POW camp is a microcosm of the British class system. Um, and it's given a fair degree of stick as well, I think. The stuffy officers sit around forming committees, tweaking their pristine moustaches, fighting the war in their own dedicated way, frequently making references to London and the need to do one's duty. They tend to quietly sit on the sidelines whilst everyone else takes to risks and then the glory. And there's kind of echoes of bridging the River Choir, really, with, with, with Colby in this football match, because where does the line between collaboration and duty begin? He he, you know, he wants the men to have something to do, and football seems like a good release from the tedium. But as the game spirals, he is faced with something of a dilemma. And the, the interesting thing is that Germans aren't presented as kind of stereotypical sadists. And of course, they want to kind of bribe the refs off to make sure that they win. But they seem as well, especially the von Seiden character, that that they seem to be trying to make the best of a of a bad situation. And I don't think the film shies away from the ugly side of Nazism. Um, part of the reason why Colby um, really is insistent that the game go ahead um, is the fact that they've actually had to recruit some Polish and Russian players into the team who he recognised who were football stars before the war. And these guys have found themselves in concentration camps. And when they arrive um, to Colby, they're in, a parrot, they're in a really awful state. And he knows that sending them back really will result in their certain death. And he doesn't want the blood on, on, on his conscience. And, how did they get here? I insisted on having them. You insisted? They're all great players. They were. You are a naive fool, Colby. Insisting on great players. Von Steiner has sent you five skeletons. Guarantees that you'll turn up in Paris for his propaganda victory. Colonel, the I... Germans are doing their job very well. London knows. We heard it on the news. It's in all the papers. They're calling it another German lie. London is saying that no British officer would ever be involved in such a game. London is saying, Colonel? What about those poor bastards there? Do we send them back to the labour camps? That's a very good question, Colby. What kind of links, I suppose, Colby and the von Seiden characters, they're just love of the game. Um, you know, Originally, this idea is to improve morale, and, uh, and in the end, it's kind of spiralling to something far bigger, which von Seiden isn't... Yeah, I'm, I'm calling him von Seiden. I can't actually pronounce it, his, uh, his German name in the film, but 
he, he knows really that he wants it to be a spectacle of football and not just some kind of propaganda stunt himself. And w- one of the things I do love about it is because that Escape to Beauty doesn't take itself too seriously. Um, it wouldn't work if it did, quite frankly. And, and you can kind of tell that everyone involved in it is having a really great time. And one thing I did find about it is that the performances from the non-professional actors from you know, Ipswich Football Club who were kind of drafted in, and um, especially Pele himself, they're not, I wouldn't say they're kind of Oscar-worthy, but they're not bad. And what not bad is means to me is that you don't get drawn into the fact that they're clearly unprofessional actors. And certainly Pele, I think, has quite a, de- uh, a good screen presence. And Houston, I think, restrains them from having to kind of flex their lovey muscles too much. And you, you, you begin to buy into the fact that they're not just faces, they are, you know, certainly in the film. And you can kind of disassociate them from the role they play in their real life. And there's a real sense as well that, that there's a team being formed. Um, Sylvester Stallone is quite interesting because, you know, he was fresh off the success of Rocky II and was possibly the biggest star in the world at this stage. And his, his reasons for taking this from the film seem quite baffling um, to me as well. I'm, I'm sure money played quite a big part of it. But um, the commercial possibility of the film, I think, was, was quite limited, especially in America. His, his co-stars didn't really seem to remember him with much fondness. Um, whilst the kind of a real camaraderie developed between the rest of the cast, um, Stallone was a lot more aloof. He was surrounded by his entourage and he would often disappear, um, leaving the shoot for a few days to go and do whatever. And he even betted Pele $1,000 he would be able to beat him on the pitch and uh, Pele uh, made a complete ass of him. By the way, um, Stallone in the film, he ends up having to go in goal, which does have some quite amusing uh, uh, moments between him and Kane. But in the end, Stallone actually broke three ribs on the film, and um, it's by the sounds of things, most of his teammates weren't particularly sympathetic toward him. Where the film triumphs is its heart. There is a inglorious bastard's levels of absurdity. We know that this event never occurred in the real world, um, and, it's, and it can only exist in the magic of film, and I, I don't really care because it's it's so good. And what John Huston did, he actually left the football choreography scenes to Pele, um, and he does a really good job because I think for a lot of times uh, sports scenes in films aren't particularly good. Michael Caine was a terrible footballer, apparently, so he had a bully double in for his. But the film's most iconic moment comes when Pele scores this rather incredible overhead kick, and we, we see it in uh, various angles, and it's a slow-motion, goosebump-inducing moment. But the scene that really has me jumping for joy, I suppose, and just encapsulates my kind of giddy love of this film is at half time when they're 4-1 down and suddenly they, they get the chance to make their escape and they, they decide to have a kind of a bit of a rethink, you know, can they go on and win the game or can they go and get a result or can they beat the Germans by going away? Kobe, you take the lead off and up the rear. Okay, get Lewis and Peters. Hold on, I don't want to go. Just, Just shut up and get in there. We can beat them. Bring Peter over. Hatch, we've still got a chance. Chance, my ass. Come on, Lewis. Move. Yeah, but Hatch, don't you see? You guys crazy or something? You have no chance. Don't you understand? No chance. Hey, I guess get Peter ready, Nick. Yeah, they've been oh. lucky. That's come on. on. Them and the bloody red. I can't believe you guys. You're a bunch of goddamn maniacs. Hey, come on, let's go. How are you? Come on. Hey, hurry. Hey, come on. I don't want to well, go. Well, Let's go on. back. We can win this. Who said that? I did. It's not as though we're being slaughtered, Skipper. What do you mean we can win? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Colby, we're losing time. You mean you, mean you go back and play the second half? Well, I'll tell Let's you. Move. We only got a few minutes. Yes, but we can win this. Ah, you you can't win with me in the goal. Of course we can. He's not a bad goalie, is he? What the hell's the matter with you guys? You want to go back to prison? Oh, man, we need you. That's right. You guys do what you want, but I'm What we're doing is quitting. I ain't going back to prison. You've got to come back. If you don't, if you don't come back, we can't go. Hey. 
If you go, we've all got to go with you. Hutch. We can't go back without a goalie. It's Garrach. Hutch. Please, Hutch. That game means a lot to us. You know that. We must go back. Hutch, Please. let's go. We can win. Come on. Hutch, if we run now, we lose more than a game. Please, Hutch. It's all boys' own stuff, but it's absolutely brilliant. Escape to Victory knows exactly what it is, and it essentially plays to every adolescent schoolboy fantasy out there. Um, you can scoff at the silliness if you want, but whatever. Snidey comments aside, Escape to Victory is, I think, it's not as iconic as The Great Escape, and it's certainly no Le Grand Illusion, but it is what Sunday afternoons are made for, and I can't recommend it enough. Um, Sadly, um, this film isn't available on Blu-ray. I mean, I think it could it could do with a bit of a sprucing up. I know it's a lot of noise on the uh, DVD that I have. But it, when the film came out, it came out to kind of so-so reviews and so-so box office. But I think it's been kept alive um, over the years by the fact that it does have this kind of cult status to it. And I, I think you can't really go right. I, I think it's a film where it verges on the legitimately good, at least in my eyes, and uh, I will always stand by it. So that's Escape to Victory. So that's going to be it for this episode. Um, Many thanks to everyone who has um, got in contact with me regarding the podcast and whether or not it was continuing. I'm sorry that it's taken so long. Um, Thank you so much for sticking by it, and hopefully we can push on and get some more out there. I'm definitely going to be doing a 2015 review show. I appreciate it's almost the end of February, but I needed some time to kind of just go over the last year and watch a couple more films and get some kind of second opinions on them so i'll be working on that um i also think i am i'll be addressing in the next episode a few i've had a few questions as well sent to me over the past few days uh, past few weeks actually and i'm kind of going to get around to answering those so um i will definitely be out on the airwaves again very soon and you can always find me as well with Joachim on the masters of cinema cast which has been going very well we've just celebrated our 50 episode in special in a very special way as well so you can find me at 24framescast.blogspot.com at 24framescast um on twitter you can also follow me on moccast.blogspot.com um and we, I don't have a, um, a Facebook page for this podcast, but there is one for the Masters of Cinema, so you can always go over there on Facebook and uh, like us there. And you can also find me on Facebook, obviously, as Tom Jennings. Um, I'm the one who's looking incredibly moody um, in front of the Berlin Wall, if you want to befriend me. So many thanks for listening, and I'll be in contact soon. Bye.